This morning's Old Testament reading um, comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 10 through 13, and it is on page 738 of your Pew Bibles. Hear these words from the book that we love. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seeds for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading today comes from Romans 8, verses 1 through 11, page 1132 in your Pew Bibles. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives us life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit of life, by the Spirit, is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. 
good to be with you this morning. Uh, if any of you still have your Bible open to Romans 8, I encourage you to just leave it open. It might help for um, following along with the sermon. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Klaus Walhout. I am a pastor in the CRC and a chaplain at St. Mary's Healthcare, uh, Trinity Health Grand Rapids, uh, it's now called, uh, downtown on Jefferson Street. And uh, I was just talking to the staff this morning as we were praying before the service. I think this is like the fourth or fifth year in a row that I've been able to, able to preach here in the summer, and it's, uh, it's really come to mean something to me. So thank you for having me back. Before we uh, really dive into our scripture for today, how about we have a prayer for illumination? Would you join me? Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, <laughs> I saw a meme on the internet one time, and it, has the, it had the caption, American Christianity these days. And it's a drawing of someone who I guess is supposed to be Jesus knocking on a door. And he says, let me in, my child. And the person inside says, why should I let you in, Jesus? And so he says, I'm trying to save you. Save me from what? From what I'm going to do to you if you don't. That's faith for a lot of people, isn't it? A get-out-of-hell-free card? A lot of people talk about being saved and maybe don't always know from what they're being saved or for what they're being saved. But boy, do we like to say it. We're saved. I think this is because we don't always know God's grace. We don't always know how to talk about it. And if we don't know God's grace, then we don't really know what sin is. And if we don't know what sin is, then the cross is just a charade that God does for us, where Jesus stands up to God and takes the punch for us like he's taken a punch from the schoolyard bully for us. If we don't know grace, then that's all the cross is. Paul, who wrote Romans, knew grace. He encountered it in a very real way on the road to Damascus. We're told this story in the book of Acts. When he was still called Saul, and Christ said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And so Saul had his entire life turned upside down by grace. And when the scales finally fell from his eyes, he was able to see the futility of a so-called faith that he had, a faith that went on trying to please God, a faith that was so myopic, that was so self-focused, that it could only ever lead him down the road towards spiritual death, towards self-hatred, towards isolation. And as we lead up to, to uh, Romans 8 for today, the chapter leading up to that is Romans 7, Paul talks about that so-called faith that he had. He writes about being a follower of the religious laws of his time. And he, he recognizes that those laws are, are good. He says those laws show us 
what is good, what is right, and what is wrong, right? He says, take, for example, the, um, the commandment, do not covet. The law shows us rightly that coveting what our neighbor has is wrong. But, he writes, and I quote, sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So sin lodged itself within the system of the law to trick him into following this road towards self-isolation and hate. Sin used the vessel of the law to bring spiritual death to Saul. So that is the position that Saul is in as he walks down the, the Damascus road before his life is turned upside down. I do not understand my own actions, he writes, for I do not do what I do want, but I do the very thing that I hate. He says, I am a slave to sin. I'm stuck in a prison, a prison of his own making, trying in his feeble way to please an infinite God, a perfect God, a God that is beyond all human reckoning with his own feeble human attempts. Saul, then, is like the child who has not been able to properly and lovingly attach to their parents or to their mother. The child that hasn't experienced the unconditional love of a parent, and so they run this way and that. They're constantly anxious, constantly uncertain, always terrified, always resentful, and yet so desperate to please that parent who they do not know and who is unpredictable, and they're trying to extract the love they want. Paul is like that child running this way and that, trying to satisfy the whims of an unpredictable mother God. Or father, maybe it was father for some people. So I think, well, not, I just don't think, a lot of people think that for Paul, when he writes about law in this uh, scripture passage for today, he's not talking just specifically about the set of Jewish laws. You can see he talks about the law of sin and death, the law of the spirit. So law to him then becomes this theological term where it's about a system, okay? Law is a system. It's not simply the ritual law, but a complex religious set of rules. The way that we try to get by on human righteousness rather than grace. Okay? The complex regulations, rules, the constant in-grouping and out-grouping, the constant jealousy, envy, taboo, through which we humans try to neglect and forget about our own mortality, about our own terror, and to justify ourselves before God. That is the law according to sin. And until you encounter the real thing, the grace of the risen Jesus Christ calling you out of that system, you don't understand what this law of sin and death is by any means 
other than maybe a pit, a feeling in the pit of your stomach that something is not quite right here. But once you encounter grace, you're able to call this system what it is, the system of desperate self-interest and self-justification. You call it what it is, sin. Grace teaches us what sin is. That's something that we get wrong a lot in our tradition. We think that we know what sin is because it's obvious. Grace teaches us what sin is. But in that prison of sin is not where we live. We are set free, Paul says, from the law of sin and death, and we are now under a new law, a new regime. Okay? The old government is not in control anymore. There's a new power. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The new law was established through the death of our Lord in which Paul writes, he condemned sin in the flesh. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Flesh is a tricky word. You may have noticed reading the uh, scripture along for today. It says it a lot. It's a really tricky one, especially for us. Um, It's tempting to read this, as a lot of people have, uh, this passage in Romans 8, as this dichotomy of flesh, okay, flesh and spirit. Okay, so on on the one hand, you have physical things are bad or something, and then spiritual things are good. That would be an abuse and a misunderstanding of the text. Paul isn't pushing towards some rejection of our bodies, some rejection of physicality in favor of some kind of I'll fly away Christianity where we leave this world behind. No, for Paul, flesh is a very specific, precise word. You may have heard this before. He uses two different Greek words repeatedly to refer to flesh and then to refer more specifically, generally, to the human body itself. Flesh is the word sarx. He uses the word over and over again, sarx. Soma, in verse 11, he talks about the body, just the body that we all have, the body that will pass away and that we come to accept that over the course of our lives. For flesh, for for Paul, flesh is a theological term, a precise term that refers to the part of us that stubbornly prefers we don't know why, stubbornly prefers to stay in that old system, to, prefers to stay in the prison of sin, that prefers a life of self-interest, self-justification, and self-destruction rather than freedom in the grace of God. It's the part in us that says, like the Israelites, take us back to Egypt. At least we had our system there. At least there was some order. Flesh is the name that we give to the futility of sin's selfishness once it has been illuminated by grace. Okay? Flesh is the name that we give to the, sin, the selfishness of sin and the futility of it once it has been illuminated by grace. But you are not in the flesh 
You are in the Spirit, says Paul, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. So if we are saved then, this comes back to the, the issue of what are we saved from? If we are saved from sin's condemnation, the condemnation of sin by Christ, what are we saved for? What's the purpose of it all? There's a, this, you've heard these terrible things people say like uh, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth, these kinds of things where we're just kind of waiting to, to go to heaven, right? <laughs> nonsense. It's nonsense. What are we being saved for? Paul says we are being saved for life in the Spirit. The Spirit of the eternal God dwells in you. The Spirit of the eternal dwells in your body. It's incomprehensible. Words fail. Even to say it defies logic. We say it so often, I think we're at risk of thinking that we understand it. What does it mean to have what cannot be had, to possess what cannot be possessed? The Spirit of the Almighty God dwells in you. And so each of us have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, says Paul. The theologian uh, Karl Barth wrote a, wrote a commentary on the epistle to the Romans, uh, and he writes about this mystery of having received the Spirit of God. He wrote that we can barely even dare to try to have a conversation of what it means to have the Spirit, to have the Spirit, but we have to try anyway because, and I quote, we have no other word other than Spirit. We have no other word which we can make use of to define the impossible possibility of our lives. The impossible possibility of our lives that we both have Christ and yet we do not have him, at least not in the way that we typically understand what it means to have. That we are both dead and alive. That we are both laboring under the yoke of sin and yet at the same time being carried away by a kingdom that is not of this world. And it's in this mystery this mystery of somehow being in possession of and yet much more greatly being possessed by a spirit, possessed by a spirit, the spirit of God. The ancient world knew how to talk about what it meant to be possessed by a spirit. Usually we just kind of relegate that to the, the world of the, the strange, fringy folks. But this is what Paul is saying. You are possessed by a new spirit, the spirit of God, in this mystery, we are made new. You are brought to life. You are brought to life. And it's there that you are given the impossible possibility of recognizing yourself in Christ and beginning to recognize him dawning in you. Let's stick with this for a minute, okay? Karl Barth, in his commentary, reminds us that Christ was not sent to this world of ours to be a, a, just a moral model or to reform us. 
not sent to help us transcend the physical plane in some way. He wasn't sent to bring change in the way that a political leader says, I'm going to bring change if I'm in control. No, he writes, he was sent to proclaim the new person, the existence of a new kind of person who recognizes themselves in God for they are made in his image and in whom God recognizes himself for he is the pattern. And so that's how I understand, I think it's verse 8 or 9 where it says, those in the flesh cannot please God. How self-destructive we can be, I think our tendency is to, to read that to say, oh gosh, am I in the flesh? Am I not pleasing God? No. It, it's a simple statement of fact. We do not please God if we are unable to recognize ourselves in Christ. Because it pleases God when we recognize that Christ is living in us. God delights in that. It's a simple statement of fact. To recognize themselves in God, that is what Christ enabled them who follow after him to do. Or as the theologian uh, James Allison, one of my favorite theologians, he puts it this way, to begin to enjoy being made in the image of God. Saul, not Paul, Saul, when he was living in the flesh, was like that anxiously or, yeah, anxiously attached child, eager to please the parent because he did not trust the parent. He didn't know how to trust the parent. To contrast with that image of life in the flesh, an image comes to mind for life in the spirit, okay? And the image that I think of is a child opening a gift, okay? Child opening a gift, I would guess that uh, most of you, who, if you have children, you've given them a gift. If you don't have children, you've, maybe you've given a gift to your niece or your nephew. And you've seen the delight on the face of the child as they are unwrapping it and as they see what it is. The delight on their face as they open this gift. And in the spirit, I think Paul is saying that we are like children who are being given a gift that we've only just begun to understand the goodness of. We've only just begun to scratch the surface of what this gift is. Life in the Spirit. And as you grow up, you start to learn that valuable lesson that to give a gift is actually better to than to receive it, right? And so, the giver is actually delighting even more than the child who is receiving the gift. And living in the spirit rather than the flesh for Paul, living in the spirit, being brought to life by Christ, is to begin to dare to believe that your creator delights in you. That your creator delights in you. And that this is how we are saved. This is the shape of our salvation. Being called out of self-centered futility, the futility of the flesh, as Paul calls it, into the spacious freedom of being a source of delight. Of being a source of delight to the source that you delight in. And so, we each become a parable 
Each one of us is brought to life by Christ throughout the course of our lives. Even at the end of our lives, we are still being brought to life in the Spirit. That's the mystery of of life in Christ, isn't it? And yet, words fail to capture what this means. It's, It's impossible. It's the impossible possibility. When we talk about the mystery of salvation, words fail us. Don't trust anyone who thinks that they have it all worked out, that they understand that salvation is, a, is an equation that we can understand fully how it works. A plus B equals C. No. We, each of us, and together as a church, are being woven together as a living parable of being brought to life. Karl Barth, in that, in that same uh, commentary, writes... Only in parable can we contrast the death of this body with the life of the Spirit of God in us. It's true. Only obliquely. We can only get at it from the side. We can only get at it through art, through parable, through through a moment of clarity. Only obliquely can we possibly begin to grasp this mystery. The mystery of somehow both being dead and alive. Uh, we mentioned, Pastor Tony was mentioning in the announcements, all that's going on in the wake of Synod this year, and it feels like that, that conversation has moved so uh, like online. There's so many podcasts and, and talks and pe- people's takes on, on what's, what's happening in our midst. And, uh, and I've heard a few people talk about and, and they seem genuine in saying this, honestly. That talk about how beginning to grow tired of hearing stories rather than arguments, that we need to have a constructive conversation about arguments, about how hearing stories of queer Christians or LGBTQ plus Christians is, is important, but we want to have an argument about what the Bible says. And there's a, there's a space for, for what the Bible says. But there's a space for stories. They're saying, we would be happy to engage with you, but give, us a, give me a biblical argument that I can refer back to my biblical argument. And then we can have an, an argument together. <laughs> there's a place for argument. And by the way, I actually do think there's a very strong biblical argument to be had. But that's besides the point. They're missing something, right? The point of sharing a story isn't to rebut an argument. The point of sharing a story is to say, I was once lost, but now I'm found. Right? These aren't, these aren't look at me, aren't I great stories. These aren't everyone has their own truth stories. These are stories of I am being brought to life by Christ. And I want to share in that with you. Look at how I was lost, but I was found. Look at how I was stuck in a self-destructive, suicidal shame. And now I've arrived at a spacious grace of being brought to life by the Lord of life. There is a place for argument, but there is a place for parable. To be in Christ is to be together a living parable of an incorruptible hope. A hope that is based in the knowledge that we have only just begun to scratch the surface of the life that God is giving us.
a life that we can only now see as through a glass darkly, but then we shall see face to face. Amen? And until we see Christ face to face, we will continue to share our songs, our joys, our sorrows, our stories, our very lives together, and to continue to tell a story, a parable together, of how we have been brought to life by Christ, swept up in the Spirit, and given a seat at the table of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. amen. Let's pray together. Living God, we pray that each day you might illuminate what it means to live in your spirit, that you might bring us to life so that we might not be people just with ideas but with relationships, that we might be a living church, living out your love, a parable of Christ's love for this world a sacrificial love, a self-giving love, a love that we are only beginning to understand. May that love come into power in us all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.